Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Professor Ken Coates is with us. He's one of our favorite guests on this show. Uh, Ken, thank you very much for taking the time. And when we when we look at uh, colleges and post-secondary uh, institutions of, of, uh, of education, in the op-ed, you write in part, that the high school graduates this year, the ones who are going to university for the first time, are probably the, the least prepared of any time in Canadian history. Well, isn't that a, another problem on top of a whole bunch of other problems? You know, the reality is, is that classes stopped in about March. Uh, that means that the graduating classes, grade 12 students, missed about a quarter of their year. Uh, it meant they, they missed the final exams in their second part of the year, their second semester, perhaps, in most institutions. Um, it meant that their, their whole high school education ended with a fizzle rather than a bang. And um, it also means that they, they've lost all the momentum. You know, ordinarily you finish your classes toward the end of June, you write your final exams, you have graduation ceremonies. Two months later, you're off to university, off to college, off to polytech. Not this time. This time you've been finished in March. The uh, high schools did their best to transition to online learning. Some succeeded, many did not. Um, and now these kids are supposed to adjust not just to university, college, or polytech, but to these all these institutions studying entirely online. And online is an extremely difficult way for people to learn. Um, there are it works very well for professional programs. MBAs work online. Masters of Public Administration programs work online. They've got lots of health degrees online, nursing programs, and what the like. But I'll tell you, I think this grade this grade twelve class transitioning to first year at post-secondary education is in for a very rough ride. And I sure hope that people, parents, the kids themselves, the institutions are preparing them properly for what lies ahead. You know, I remember our first conversation about uh, this very issue about going to university. And we had talked about your book, What to Consider, if you're considering university. And you pointed out, I think the number was 80%. I'm just going by memory. 80% of students tend to just follow each other like a little herd, whatever the, or a big herd, whatever the, uh, the, 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 the course, uh, du jour is, the favorite course among that particular high school year graduation, graduating cohort. That's where they all go. Uh, if that's the case this year, that's going to be even more problematic than it has been in the past, wouldn't it be? I think it's very problematic, and partly because we don't know what uh, the post-COVID economy looks like. You know, people are talking about V-shaped recoveries and you know a, a ramping up of the economy. We're not going back to normal. There's no way we're going to be back to normal in the fall of 2020. I don't think we're back to normal until the fall of 2021 or perhaps even further than that. And normal will not be what it was before. And so it's really problematic. You know, we have, people have to be very strategic. For example, there is a massive expansion and will be a massive expansion uh, in people going in the health studies areas, particularly in practical and applied areas of, you know, things like radiology and nursing and things of that sort. Um, we're going to see a, a huge decline, I think, in the demand for people with your standard bachelor's, your bachelor of business degree. Why is that? Well, we're going to have about a quarter of all all small businesses in Canada will probably fail uh, in the 12 months that follow the start of the of the, uh, the virus and the pandemic. Um, it means they're not going to be hiring the kind of people they hired in the past. Um, it means that you know government has spent a staggering amount of money, and they won't be doing as much hiring in 2021 and 2022 as they were in the past. So people have to be much more cautious 
about trying to match up their interests, their abilities, and the marketplace. And that's what we talk about in what to, what to consider when you're considering university. Please don't just do what your friends are doing. Don't just go to the local institution. Don't just go to the business program because that's what everybody's doing or run off to education because somebody told you there's a good and easy job in teaching for people there. Don't, don't do that. Sit down very carefully, reflect on what you can do, what your talents are, what your interests are, and, and most importantly, where the economy is going. You can study what you love to study, but if people aren't going to hire you, you better be prepared for a long transition to the paid workforce. You said uh, a couple of minutes ago that universities and colleges need to prepare. Need, you hope they're preparing for this uh, coming year and that uh, parents and students should be preparing as well. How should the post-secondary institutions of learning be preparing for this? Well, and it's interesting. What now? They've got all their faculty members rushing like crazy to get their, their courses online, and they've got to be online in the next couple of weeks, which is a real challenge. You take a sort of a year's worth of study and try to put it in a different format. Um, here's the kinds of things we need. Students need to understand the different challenges of studying online. It is not the same as going to a regular class in a regular classroom, not even remotely close. Um, they have to really understand the fundamental value of reading. And if they haven't got a culture or a habit of reading, they better work like crazy in the next four or five weeks to figure out how to spend time with a book and how to spend time with an article or how to read the material in a systematic and sort of careful way. Um, but here, here's the one that I always put the greatest emphasis on. A full-time student, whether they're going to a polytech or, or a university, is taking on the equivalent of, a, of more than a full-time job. We're telling students that if you go and work at a full, as a full-time student, you should prepare to spend about 50 hours a week. That's actually a lot of time. That's more than a regular full-time job. And that's doing your class time, doing your reading, doing your assignments, doing your preparations, rewriting your essays, all that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you, when students come out of high school, they think, oh, look it. I used to have to be in class from 8.30 in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon. Now I only have to go to class three hours a day. And so, boy, I have more time. I'm going to get a part-time job. And we know statistically that students who work more than 10 hours a week will see their grades fall quite dramatically. So what happens is students think they have lots of free time. They start working part-time in the bar or the pub or the, or the restaurant or whatever it happens to be. And they get to about October and they're falling behind and they haven't got their essays done. And their whole semester gets wrapped up in a, in a sort of an educational debacle. So I think it's really important that the students listen carefully to how to learn, how to study, how to organize their time, um, and how to make this a full-time commitment. And parents sometimes need to hear the same stories. So the best universities in the country have started some very good summer programs. Ironically, the best programs are for the, always for the best students in elite, elite, elite academic programs. They're not really set up for the average student running in, not sure what they're going to study, taking a first-year Bachelor of Arts or Bachelor of Science. But a lot of institutions have good summer programs, um, learning skills, learning modules, how to, how to coordinate your schedules, how to plan your time. Um, those things should be absolutely full to bursting. Um, I would recommend that every student going into university, college, or polytech make sure they take at least one writing course in the next month. Uh, sign up for something where you're getting some basic exercise in how to write for academic purposes. Um, these are, those are easy steps to take. Um, and when I say this, I know that 90% of the students will, do, will not do this. They will not get prepared. They're thinking I'm summer job or I'm getting my SERP payment, so why should I do anything? I'm going to hang out to the beach. And, and students will basically run into a brick wall about the middle of September because they're so, going to be trying to manage up to four or five courses 
online format. It's an di- uncomfortable way to learn. It's not intuitive. It's not automatic. Uh, I'm just very worried about what might happen this fall all across Canada at all of our institutions. I have one more question on this issue, and then we're going to talk to you about uh, the piece you wrote for MLI. And and the question is this. Prior to the pandemic, there was already a 30% dropout rate at uh, universities, post-secondary institutions of learning. Given everything you've told us now, what do you expect is going to happen to the dropout rate? So two things will happen, and of course I mean no satisfaction and no joy in this. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. I think we're looking at about a, a 50% dropout rate, but I think we're also going to look at about you know, people who stay in the program for the semester, that they'll, they'll be much higher than it was before, particularly at open-entry universities that are accepting people with sort of below 80% averages. It's a bit of a, a sort of a, a cutoff point. Um, I think the other thing that will happen is that in the next four or five weeks, we're going to get probably an extra 10% of the students deciding not to go. As they start getting closer to that time, and even if they signed up and said they're going to come, they're going to be sitting there going, my heavens, what is what is this all about? We're hearing all these stories from students who are protesting uh, the high tuition fees, the fact that they're not getting a break on tuition, they can't use the gyms, they can't use the social settings, they can't use the local pub and cafeteria, but the tuition fee is the same. And the students are really, there's a lot of student anger about this and say, hey, an online course is not as good as a face-to-face course. And I think we're going to get a lot of parents and a lot of kids saying, this is a great year for a timeout. This is a great year for a, for a gap year, if you want to call it that, uh, for some practical experience in the workforce, for volunteerism, maybe sort of Canadian travel, if not international travel. So I think we could see a lot fewer students actually ending up staying in university, going to university. And, and if you do the math on this, the implications for our institutions are is very, very serious. Uh, universities are a very uh, marginal sort of balance sheet. They, they, they play pretty close to the edge. And if we get a 10% decline in the number of students at any university in the country, and some are going to be way higher than that, and they're going to be in great financial difficulty, and south of the border, we're going to see dozens and dozens of universities and colleges close. And not just close for, for four months, they'll close permanently. I'm not as likely to see that happen at that scale in Canada, but I'm very nervous. Ken, when it comes to uh, Indigenous peoples, First Nations people, and the energy industry, the Supreme Court of Canada decision concerning TMX pipeline expansion recently is of significant, uh, absolute significance, and the dependency the Canadian oil and gas industries have on relationships with Indigenous peoples, you'll point that out as well. When we put the two together, what do we get? We get a transformation the like of which we rarely see in Canadian life. You know, you and I can remember back 20 years when the idea of Indigenous people being involved in the, in the energy economy was sort of a, a fanciful dream. You know, a few training programs here, a few training programs there, and, and they're not very much going on. Uh, to a situation now where there are First Nations who are actively campaigning for the right to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And, and who would have thought that? Who would have thought that was possible? Um, and it's been happening because of a whole bunch of reasons. The First Nations won recognition of their treaty and, and Aboriginal rights because First Nations people and Indigenous communities became far more entrepreneurial and became heavily invested in getting away out of away from government dependency. Corporations realized that working closely with First Nations people and Métis and Inuit communities was actually really good uh, for their economic bottom line, for their, for their business case. Um, and we end up with a situation where, and it is really ironic, 
where, you know, the front lines of reconciliation in Canada, where Indigenous and non-Indigenous people are coming together and overcoming some of their frustrations in the past, not happening in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver. It's actually happening in the, in the natural resource sector, in the mining and oil and gas industries. And we see this in the oil and gas sector. You know, you've, you've had all this controversy about the what's what situation in North and in North Central British Columbia, everybody's saying, oh, this is an example of Indigenous protest. Well, there are a few people, Wet'suwet'en people, who are opposed. From what I can see, the majority of the Wet'suwet'en people are in favor. But the, the coastal gas thing is building that pipeline, signed 20 different agreements with First Nations from one end of the pipeline to the other, and got their support for the development of the pipeline and the development of a liquefied natural gas industry in northern B.C., so who would have thought it? Who would have thought it 20 years ago? Not me, not many other people. And yet you write also in the op-ed, sadly, it would be sadly ironic if Indigenous communities' progress economically were halted by Government of Canada's position on climate change. Isn't that tragic, you know, and what a, what a horrible circumstance of timing. If all of this stuff on the First Nation involvement had backed up 20 years ago, you wouldn't be talking about about Suncor, you wouldn't be talking so much about major corporations, Husky Oil and, and Total and all these kind of you know, foreign-owned companies. You'd have every conversation we'd be talking about and the partially owned by the Athabascan Chippewa First Nation, partially owned by the Port Mackay First Nation. But what's happening is that, that ownership and that involvement is happening at precisely the moment where there's a global movement against oil sands development and against uh, carbon production. Uh, very well-organized anti-pipeline groups, very well-organized anti-oil sands groups, uh, and the government of Canada that really, can't, quite frankly, can't make up its mind as to which group it supports the most, uh, pushing in, in both directions simultaneously. Um, and, and wouldn't it be sad if uh, the decision to have an aggressive climate change policy, uh, which I don't think is, would actually change the global consumption of energy very much, um, would actually nonetheless end up cutting out the, the foundations from underneath I'm an indigenous set of indigenous communities that are sharing in Canadian prosperity for the first time uh, in, well, since, the, since Confederation. And so we're just getting one great movement going, and a second and very important and equally great movement is, a, is sort of coming and crashing up against it. And that's one of those horrible ironies that just seems so unfair, the kind of stuff that indigenous people have to put up with all the time. Now, the sad reality is, for First Nations peoples, if, in fact, the oil sands uh, are not developed any further, and if the Canadian energy sector continues to be hurt, uh, and Indigenous peoples continue to be hurt or start to be seriously hurt, now that they're making progress, the oil is still going to be produced around the world, and it's still necessary. That, that's right, and it's necessary probably for 30 to 40 years, and, and we're going to see, in fact, in some, some most forecasts, including by the International Panel on Climate Change, forecast a couple of years ago a sort of continued uh, expansion in oil and gas consumption. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.